0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: In his new stand-up special for Comedy Central, today's guest takes a break from politics to talk about more
0: pressing matters. I'm always wet every day in New York, somehow. Summer, it's humid, I'm walking ass wet, armpits wet. Random air conditioners dripping on you. Was that an air conditioner? I don't know, keep going. Wet, (laughs) wet, wet. wet. Fall, I put a jacket on, then the sun comes out. Neck wet, head wet, backpack wet. Winter, you put on all these clothes, right? Then you sit in the subway, heat. Neck wet, hamstrings wet, feet wet. Change my socks, feet wet, change my socks. Spring, raining, raining wet. Bus, puddles, wet. I'm always wet. (laughs) Living in New York is like being Leonardo DiCaprio in every single one of his movies. Let's go through them. What do you want to start with? Titanic, drowns to death, wet. Great Gatsby dies in the pool at the end, wet. Shutter Island, it's an island, wet. The beach, wet. Give me some, give me some Leonardo movies, give me some. Inception, first dream, pouring rain. Wet. Gang's in New York. He's in the whorehouse sweating the whole time. Wet. Gilbert Grape takes a bath in the second act. Wet. Give me some more. (laughs) Departed, movie theater scene, wearing a hat, starts raining on him. Wet. Revenant starts in a fucking river. Wet. Great Gatsby, I already said it, was the second example. What's wrong with this audience? He dies in the pool at the end. Pay attention. Wet. This is The Last
1: Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast and I am super excited to be joined for this bonus episode by comedian and Daily Show correspondent, Michael Costa. Michael's new special, Detroit, New York, LA, premieres tonight at 11 p.m. on Comedy Central. And it is such a welcome flashback to a time when people actually went out and did things. He taped it about a year ago in those three cities, and since then, he has spent pretty much the entire time trapped inside his Brooklyn apartment, filming remote bits for The Daily Show on an iPhone. This conversation was a lot of fun, so let's get to it. Here's me with Michael Costa. We're talking a few days now before your your new special is about to drop. But when people hear this, it will be premiering tonight, Friday cool. night. Yes. So, how are you? How are you feeling with this with the special about to go out in the world?
2: I'm great. Meaning, I'm excited that it's going out in the world, and we filmed it about a year ago.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it must have been a while since you since you filmed this thing because you're traveling all over the country. It seems very exciting. You're, <laughs> I know lots of big crowds, lots of action.
2: I can't tell if it's good or if it's bad. That literally, the title of the special is Detroit, New York, L.A. Three different places, three <laughs> places that no one should be traveling to right now. Exactly, uh, and also that there's you know, thousands of people in the theater show or in an intimate comedy club in New York, an intimate comedy club in LA. I'm going to go ahead and be optimistic and hope that putting out content right now is good because people want to consume.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it's kind of fun. You like feel like you're, you know, you're out when you're watching it.
2: That is true. And that's, (laughs) that was when we, when we filmed this, I didn't think that people would be watching just because they're going, oh, wow, it's nice to go somewhere different.
1: Yeah. So you you do something pretty unique with the special, as you said, it's called uh, Detroit, New York, LA, and you filmed the, I assume you filmed the hour in each of the places and then you cut it together. So how did you come up with that idea? Why did you want that to be what your, what your special is?
2: Yeah, your assumptions, right. That's, that's what we did. <laughs> uh, I filmed an hour in each location and prior to filming had pretty good ideas about what sections I wanted to use in New York, what sections I wanted to use in Los Angeles. But The short answer is it follows my path as a comedian. I started in Detroit and then I went to the coasts and I've kind of stayed here. Uh, I'm now in Brooklyn right now in New York as we speak. So I always prided myself on being someone that could make different audiences laugh, no matter where I was. I thought that was the definition of a standup comic was if I'm on a cruise ship, if I'm at a funeral home, if I'm at a kid's show, I, my job is to make everybody laugh everywhere. And as I kind of lived on the coasts, I would see these comics that were great, but were great on the coast. And then I would go back home to Michigan. I see these comics that were great, but they were great just in Michigan and I said, hey, maybe I can showcase what I think a comedian is supposed to do, and that's what how the special came about.
1: Were there differences in the in the audiences from city to city in terms of what they responded to or sort of how, how the yeah. shows went?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, y- yes and no. Yes, of course, L.A. laughs harder at, you know, jokes about how soft they are than people in Detroit <laughs> do because people in Detroit are not soft – Um, But also one of the goals of the show was to show, there's this belief that we're all so sensitive now that we can't take a joke. Um, I mean, the first seven minutes I'm in New York, all I am doing is ridiculing New York and they love it and i love it and and they know that i'm loving them because in new york how you say i love you is you make fun of somebody
1: yeah you're not you're not finding your audience is getting offended by what you're saying in any in any of these places really
2: i don't find that now there are occasionally one or two people will be upset at a comedy show but it is so rare i mean now look i'm not super dirty either but I do think what the internet has done is it's given a very, 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 very small minority this voice that feels much bigger than it is.
1: Mm-hmm. You're so you're from Michigan, right? You you grew up there.
2: I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is about thirty minutes from Detroit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, Michigan was obviously one of these states that got more attention than than uh, usually does in the last few months. Seems like you have a lot of voting problems in Michigan, from what I hear. Uh,
2: yeah, according to the president of the United States, <laughs> it's it's uh, so much fraud. Michigan is always baffles me because it is this beautiful state with all of these coastline of the Great Lakes. And I grew up in Ann Arbor, which was this melting pot of culture and language and education. And then every time I turn on the news and it's something about Michigan, it's like big fat white guys holding machine guns, standing on the <laughs> ca- the Capitol steps. And I'm like, w- where's this Michigan? So Michigan is has. There's some dumbasses in Michigan, just like there are everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it was in the special. You say that you you weren't surprised that Trump won in uh, 2016, because partly because you're from michigan or you know you know certain types of people who might vote for him what were you thinking going into this election were you expecting him to win again yeah
2: yeah that's a good question i expected biden to win this one but i'm always i was surprised at how close it was you know i i just don't see i i don't really like dig into on my comedy i don't really dig into politics that much i try to be it's not even that i'm attempting to be in the center. I just think I am. And I kind of try to look at things from from both perspectives. I was surprised that 70 million people have lived through these last four years and said, yes, let's do more of that.
1: Yeah. Tell me about it. Me too. Where are you? I'm in LA. Oh,
2: you're in LA. Okay. Got it. So yeah. And I was in LA the night Trump won and, and I was at the comedy store. I mean, people were weeping, weeping in the streets. And the next day, I flew to Erie, Pennsylvania to perform at Junior's Comedy Club, this awesome comedy club, and people were, some people were weeping of happiness, <laughs> yeah. and it, it just gives you that reminder of like, hey guys, everybody, leave your fucking bubble. Like, go thirty minutes in, out of your bubble, and you will see that it is different.
1: Yeah. So I mean, you must. So with that in mind, you must perform for people of all different political stripes. And and do you do you see any different reactions in that? Have you ever had any strange reactions to things based on people's political beliefs? Because you, sure. you don't. You, maybe you don't talk about politics, like presidential politics, but you talk about political issues.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I like to do that. I I like to do everything, but I I don't just want to get out there and start dissecting the Me Too movement in the first 15 minutes of my comedy special. But I do think we should talk about these things that are uh, at the forefront of our society. Sometimes in real America, you'll get people laughing at the joke because they just heard a word they like, not because they're understanding the joke. (laughs) And then sometimes in fake America or coastal America, you get people laughing because they think it's smart, not because it's actually funny. And both of those, I find both of those to be entertaining.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One issue you talk about in the special is uh, guns, and you say uh, your quote is uh, "guns are the hardest topic to do jokes about." Is that why you wanted to uh, to take that on as a topic?
2: Yeah, for sure. I one, I, I had a, I have opinions on it, and I want to share those opinions. And one of the things that somehow is still allowed in comedy is they just give a person a microphone and say talk, and it's like, <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe this is allowed. Yeah. But about but, so whatever I want, you want. <laughs> about whatever you want. You really don't have any rules other than kind of. Try Try to stick to your time. Yeah, I enjoy the level of difficulty. You know when when you watch like a, a diver in the Olympics and it's like he's doing this dive and this is how hard it is. Uh I like those topics that are more difficult and trying to execute a joke about them. I think in some ways creating tension with your audience gives you something to then release. Uh, I like that, but I also don't do it all the time and I don't, I don't want to do 45 minutes of it. That was always my criticism of George Carlin. I was always like, Hey man, this is so smart and you're so funny, but I'm exhausted right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Just because you're, you have to think too much.
2: (laughs) You're too smart right now. And it's like, it, it kind of makes sense that Steve Martin came after him where he's like, puts a fake arrow through his head and you're like, Oh, I don't have to think at all. I can just laugh. Both George Carlin and Steve Martin made me laugh. I'm trying to be me and not be you know, either one of them, but I, I don't want to be a lecturer up there. I want people to leave feeling like they had a good time and, and it was, it was fun and easy to pay attention to. Going
1: back a little bit. I mean, how did you get into, to comedy? Cause I mean, I think if there's one thing that, that some people know about you, it's that you started as a tennis player. Um, and that's where you were headed before you, before you started doing comedy. So how did you make that transition?
2: Yeah. Tennis was my first dream and first attempt to be exceptional at something. And, uh, it is really fucking hard, I ran, I ran out of, I ran out of money. Uh, I lost a lot. And eventually I had always written little anecdotes and little funny thoughts in a book as a way to relieve stress from tennis. And, and when it was all done, when tennis was done and I, I was offered a job to coach at university of Michigan, I was now finally in a city There was bars there was open mics and i took these jokes to a bar one night and then once i did that i I was screwed i can i could never do anything else yeah you got addicted to comedy i got addicted to the idea of the control that you have and that you get to decide where the show goes and what they get to listen to now that also that that comes with some risks which is they don't like you or find you funny. And that is extremely difficult to deal with, still is extremely difficult to deal with. It just happens less and less as you keep going.
1: How were those early shows when you maybe weren't uh, doing as well at the beginning? How How did it go for you?
2: They're brutal. They're always hard. But I think as an athlete, I was more understanding of the process and didn't take it as personally as probably I should have you lose so much as an athlete, you face so much disappointment that it was easier for me to go, oh, that sucked, but tomorrow I have to wake up and go up again or work on it again. So I was prepared in some ways of how to handle disappointment when you lost as often as I did as a professional tennis player.
1: Yeah. Did you have sort of a a first big break or opportunity that came to you, whether it was getting on TV the first time or, or something that really like made you feel like, okay, maybe this is gonna be a career that I can do?
2: That's a good question because I would say the the biggest moment for me of when I got out of, when I first did the Tonight Show, everything changed big time, but there was so many. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean, everyone said the Tonight Show is not what it used to be. Uh, Don't worry. It's not going to change your life. And then I did this set and it changed everything and uh, it's been great. So Um, that was, I wonder wonder if
1: you caught it right before that change happened in some ways because I think maybe, maybe when it was still Leno, that was it's possible. possible. I mean, you
2: know, yeah, it's very possible. I mean, it was April 2010, it was Jay Leno. I also had a really good set on there, it's on YouTube. And at the time, it just took off. I don't know, a lot of people watched it and it just got me a lot more bookings, it got me a lot more in more comedy clubs, you know. But prior to that the big kind of thing that happened that made me say, okay, other people are thinking I'm funny also was probably I was selected to get into the HBO comedy festival, which was then in Aspen. And it was a big deal. And, uh, and that's made, that gave me enough confidence to kind of keep writing and keep performing. Cause sometimes all you need is a few other people to tell you you're doing a good job. And that helps. What was
1: your, what was your experience like on The Tonight Show doing it? Was it, did it feel, uh, scary, good? What what was your, what did it, what was that day like for you?
2: It was a great day. It's, it's a highlight that day. Um, it was scary, but I felt like I was ready, you know, and that's one thing that I always try to tell younger comics who are just pushing, 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 fighting, fighting, fighting to like get their opportunity is you got to, when you, when you do get the opportunity, if you truly are ready, you can, you just have the confidence to knock it out. And I felt like that. I felt like, hey man, just do what you've been doing. And now there's just a camera pointed at you and Jay Leno's behind you, which is kind of creepy. But um, <laughs> it did scare me. And when he said his, my name and I walked out there, it was like, holy fuck, I have to actually do this. But once you settled into the material that I trusted, it really, really helped. Uh, nice to be back here again. I went to Taco Bell recently, so that's exciting. Thank you. Um, Taco Bell has a menu. I don't need your stupid menu, Taco Bell, okay? It's 4 a.m., I'm blackout drunk. I don't even know whose car I'm inside of right now. This is how Taco Bell should work. When we roll up to Taco Bell, we tell them how much money we have. Then they just give us whatever crappy food they've invented that week. It's okay. Welcome to Taco Bell, can I take your order? Yeah, I have $3.12. Well, thank you, drive on through. <laughs> and then they give me a bag of 19 burrito chilada panadas or 52 chupa loompa oompa loompas. And then me and my party happily drive off to toilet town.
1: So The Daily Show is obviously, you know, the next big thing that, that, you, that happened for you and that people know you from now more than anything else. Um, what's the story of how you, how you ended up on The Daily Show?
2: Yeah, the Daily Show you talk about changing your life a second time. The Daily Show was is a whole a whole new level of acceptance and success and I I was telling someone earlier today by the time I got the Daily Show I felt like I knew a little bit about comedy and then you get there and you realize I don't know shit about comedy and uh there's a lot to learn and there's <laughs> and there's a lot of really intelligent people who are there to help you be better at comedy. So I I love that. I was auditioning, grinding through Los Angeles, pitching shows, having some things purchased, most things not made, pilots, booking a few, then they don't renew it, and the audition came across my desk through my agency and I decided to audition. And I actually used the gun bit that you referred to it was a very new bit at the time and I pulled a couple lines for the initial audition for the daily show. I mean, they were lines that I don't even think made it to the stand up version of that joke, but just ideas that I had talked to about the Second Amendment and those made it into my initial audition.
1: And then um, you you joke in the special that or you don't know, joke. You say that you were living with your parents at the time of, you know, that you were auditioning for the Daily Show that you got it. So I mean that that must have been a big change in your life as well to to get the show uh that you <laughs> I don't know if you were living with your parents by choice or not, but
2: yeah. Well it's it's a little more complicated than that. But when I got the daily show, they were living in New York City and I was in Los Angeles. Ah, okay. And so I moved in with them. Um because <laughs> when you got it. Sh- when I got it. So yeah, show business. I figured show you moved out
1: when you got it, but that was uh.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. That's a good perspective. Um, showbiz is so temporary. You sign such short contracts. There's always so many other people coming up for your job that I said, Hey mom and dad, can I crash with you while we see how this goes and we see how the daily show likes me and I like the daily show, blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, I was on The Daily Show, sleeping in a twin bed, and my mom would knock <laughs> on the door lightly in the morning and say, do you want me to make coffee for you? And I would say, yeah, of course I do. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> what do you remember about your first appearance on the show? Uh, what was the piece, and, and how did it go?
2: <sighs> Great question. The, the, the first piece, I believe I was making fun of Alex Jones and his um, oh, the stuff— The stuff he sells. (laughs) Yeah. Like the minerals and the the
1: supplements. Supplements.
2: Yeah. And I was unaware of kind of how the show, how you got on the show. So you, you pitch ideas, you can pitch in person, you can pitch over email, other people pitch for you, um, and a couple other writers had pitched this idea for me, but I wasn't really aware that it got approved and was moving forward. I I, I don't know. It was day one. And, you know, I don't know how any of this shit works. So I just got a text that said, we, you know, come to this office at 315. So I came into the office at 315 and it's like, you're on the show. Here's what's happening, blah, blah. And it was a very funny piece. Um They definitely helped me by using footage of Alex Jones. Sometimes they kind of throw you a bone to help you out. And I think that was one of the cases, hey, you're brand new. Let's, you know, if, 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 if things aren't going well, we can always show footage of Alex Jones and that'll get a laugh.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: So, so they, they helped me out and it went very well and I was very happy with it and, and. Kept going after that. And was
1: that one where you were interacting with uh, Trevor as part of the piece or?
2: Yeah, yeah. We call those a chat. I had a chat with Trevor and he just puts you at ease. He, he's not like, you know, he's not the Roman emperor who's standing there deciding if you've made it or if you haven't. He's, he's very, he's already decided that he likes you. And he just said, Hey man, just, just do it. Do, you know, do what you do. We trust you. And that's just very helpful to hear something as simple as we trust you because there is so much self doubt in this profession. Someone say, Hey, we trust you. We think you're funny. Go. That's great. That's all you need.
1: Were you a big fan of the daily show uh, in, in back before you were on it, whether in the Jon Stewart era or even when once, once Trevor started?
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, part of what became Emotional for me when I got hired on The Daily Show was I was 13 years old laying on the ground in my family room watching Craig Kilborn's Daily Show. Oh, yeah. And just laughing. And I just couldn't believe that somebody could be so arrogant <laughs> so successfully. It just made me laugh so hard. Um, I think it's still up for debate if that's arrogance or if that's just like how he is. <laughs> yeah. um, but I find it very funny. And of course, John Stewart was there for 16 years. And yeah, you know Trevor too. I mean, it wasn't easy when Trevor came in. Everyone was holding him to this John Stewart standard. I know. Yeah, totally different person, totally different perspective, totally different upbringing, totally different everything. Let the guy. Have some time to breathe and figure out the show for himself, which he's done.
1: Yeah, Um, in your in your special, you you joke about sort of you do these kind of jokes about white privilege and how hard it is to be a straight white man. It did occur to me that you've kind of become the the token white guy on the Daily Show.
2: Isn't that funny? Which
1: is not something there really was before because it was like mostly white guys. Yeah. Um, So how do you think about that and and sort of actually how? white privilege has impacted your your comedy career and now being, like, the the sole white guy on on this show.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, for a while there, they had, like, five white male correspondents. I think about that now, and I go, how did they even pick who did what? You know, now, like, with me, it's like, if there's a white guy story, well, I know I'm going to get yeah, it. Yeah, it's yours. It's mine. It's great. <laughs> Look, the, the show evolves. The show adapts. The show is... Taking on the point of view of its host. Uh, Trevor is not a white guy. He's not a white guy, American, not a white American male. So, um, he's showcasing his, his point of view that's different than most other TV hosts right now. Um, did I have to say to the Daily Show after five or six sketches, "Hey, can I not get kicked in the balls on this one? <laughs> <laughs> is it, hey, is it is it okay if I don't, you know, you, you know, or whatever it was?" And mm-hmm. and and they were like, "That's not because you're white. That's because you're new." Yeah, you know, you were, they were um,
1: the butt of the joke every time.
2: Yeah, butt of the joke every time. But but still, I also understand. The tall, white, hetero guy being the butt of the joke is also just funnier sometimes. Mm -hmm. So if that's changed my perspective or anything, I don't think so. Uh, I also, you know, part of why I wanted to talk a a little bit about that in my special was because I had a point of view on it and, uh, and I wanted to share with people that maybe it's not exactly how it's portrayed in The Daily Show, but for the most part, they're very good about kind of adhering to our point of view.
1: I mean, obviously, The Daily Show has changed so much this year, you know, with the pandemic and everything happening from home. I'd love to go back to that, those early days a little bit of when things started to change. When did you find out that the show was going to be moving totally remotely and how that would affect you guys and what the process was going to be? Because I know that was kind of crazy times.
2: It was crazy and I did not think it was smart, what we were doing. Really? Uh, You know, I said, are you guys out of your mind? We're all in tiny New York apartments. Some of us have good internet. Some of us don't. You've experienced that. And by the way, this is like my fifth internet upgrade. I can't get anybody to show up here. Yeah. And I was completely wrong. I mean, part of the momentum that we got was because Trevor and the executive producers said, why would we stop? We can do this. And man, from a correspondence standpoint, it wasn't too much different other than I've had to buy a ring light and figure out how the iPhone works. But talk about like digital, like transferring files, transferring massive files, booking guests, different time zones, Skype problems. I mean, technically, I don't even comprehend what they had to accomplish to broadcast from a one building in Manhattan for 24 years and now be broadcasting not just from Trevor's apartment, from everybody's apartment. It's a feat. And in my special, I make fun of technology. I say I hate technology. I say it's ruining our lives. But really, all of us, the one thing that saved us this quarantine has probably been technology, FaceTime video, and and delivery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is incredible what not only trevor but all the hosts of the shows are doing and i think one of the things that just kind of baffles me is their ability to adapt to telling jokes to nobody versus telling (laughs) jokes to an audience which is just a very different thing was that something how did you adapt to that at the beginning because you were doing some bits sort of on your own at home right
2: for sure i mean i don't know if i've still adapt (laughs) <laughs> you know, like I, I like an audience. I want an audience. I didn't. There's a reason I got into stand-up, not writing a book or YouTubing. which didn't YouTube really, videos, didn't, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I like the energy that exists. So I have to admit, I filmed some of these pieces, and I, as I'm sending the files, I'm thinking, this is terrible. You know, this is not <laughs> funny. And then they piece it together, and it's like, oh, okay, it worked but it is strange. It is very, very strange. I know when I spoke to Trevor in the very beginning, I said, how are you doing over there, man? Like in in your apartment with no audience. And he's like, it is the strangest comedy experience of my life. Yeah, I'm sure. A a guy who's, who's, who tours for 10,000 people, 20,000 people now is performing for like his camera (laughs) guy. Uh, so it's, it is strange, but I like money and I also like eating. And if this is how we try to make people laugh now, I'm okay with it as long as it's temporary.
1: Yeah, I talked to Dulce Sloan a few months ago sure. and she said something really interesting which is that for her when she would do the chats with Trevor, she actually felt it was like better and that there was a stronger connection because it was just the two of them talking to each other like kind of face to face whereas you know usually there's the audience and she's kind of looking back and forth and right. so do you do you feel that at all that there's
2: I feel the I feel the complete opposite. I feel the complete opposite. I mean, there are more distractions in the studio. There's cameras and people moving it. But no, I I need. I feel like Trevor and I do these chats right now, and I all part of me thinks, hey, couldn't I just record this file, send it to the editor, and then just do the lines, (laughs) just do the lines, like almost like what you're gonna do with this audio file. So one of the things that is cool about the Daily Show and what's I think really fun about the correspondence is we are not the same comic. Everyone is different. Ronnie is way different than Dulce is way, way different than me. So I feel like a strength of mine is people to people face to face. I've been bitching about how this is going away for years. Nobody listens to me. And now we're all just doing it via video, so I guess I better learn.
1: Yeah. Um, do you feel like there's a piece that you've done during this whole, uh, you know, quarantine time that that did work really well? That you felt like, oh, I think this is what it needs to be or that, uh, that yeah. it should be?
2: You know, the very beginning, I did this fake tourism commercial for my mm-hmm. apartment. <laughs>
1: um I was like one of the first ones you did, probably right. It was
2: one of the first ones we did, and I, it was it was the very first time that I realized, okay, we we can like make this work, and not just we, the show. I was like, also, I can make this work because this is not my strength. I felt like, and but then as, as I kind of kept saying that, I kind of kept talking to other comics, and they're like, Michael, this is nobody's strength. We're not depression is up, suicide is up, divorce is up. We're not supposed to be like this. So stop complaining and, and figure it out. Hi. I'm Michael Costa. Before the coronavirus, I had convinced Trevor to allow me to host a travel show through the Italian wine region. It was the perfect scheme to allow me to go balls deep into a sea of Merlot. But then we all went to shit. So now I'm stuck taking you on a journey through my apartment. Welcome to <coughs> <coughs> <Dick> <coughs> Street Apartment. <coughs> 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 Alarm code 7978. Come on. I liked that piece. I have a, another field piece where I spoke with the tribe, the chief of the Sioux tribe in South Dakota. They started COVID testing very rigorously, very early to the detriment of the governor of South Dakota. Yeah,
1: against everything she stands for, I think.
2: Against everything she stood stood for. I love that I'm talking to someone that actually knows current events. Thank you. <laughs> and South Dakota is all over the news to this day because yeah. their their cases are all over the place. And I was just we were really ahead of that on that story and I'm really proud of that piece. I think it works. The piece it's funny and it also sh- shares a good message. But I was also like good job Daily Show. You guys were on that shit and there's this like badass female lawyer of, uh, who represents the tribe. And she's just like telling the federal government to go F themselves. And it was just a great piece that that was one of those things where I go like, Oh, the daily show field pieces can, can work in the existence of our own home. And that that's an example of that.
1: Yeah. The field pieces is definitely something that's, that's suffered during this time. And I know it's something that you did a lot of, um, before this, and I, I'm sure you are, you're hoping to to get back to it at some point, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I like being with people and I like traveling to those places but I also am happy to not be standing at a Trump rally right now.
1: Yeah. Um, you weren't you weren't jealous of Jordan Klepper?
2: No, I wasn't jealous of Jordan Klepper. <laughs> I think the, I think he does a great job. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm not sure how he think he'd probably rather be sitting in his apartment too. I don't know, but it's gotten in our psyches this virus and you watch a show now and you notice the crowd, you know, when I watch my special right before it's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of people there. So I'm hoping people can kind of get over that and just get back to the jokes. But, um, but yeah, I would love to get back out in the field and, and get going as long as it's safe and everyone stays six feet away from me.
1: Yeah. You, you don't want to be in South Dakota right now.
2: I would like to talk to that governor. And I think that we maybe had tried to, but typical of anyone like that she spews this bullshit and then won't talk to anybody else. So it's like, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I don't think the daily show going on the daily show is the top of her uh, priority list.
2: Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, are there other, other, other stories, you know, that you sort of have on your mind, uh, that you would do for the daily show when, when things, uh, when you're able to travel again or places that you would want to go and, and talk to people in your, in your wildest dreams.
2: I've tried for a long time to become like the the water correspondent, oh. okay? And they always they always laugh at me because Trump tweeted 18 dumb things that day. <laughs> but I'm kind of like hoping that if if we have a boring president again that we can get into environmental Freshwater. water I'm from michigan uh i'm i I love fresh water. I think water's important it's the reason we al- are alive there are all so many stories associated with water and like lack of or too much or moving it from one place to the next, or you know so. I, I keep pitching these water stories and they're always kind of like, oh, my God, sh- shut up about water. But I'm now wondering if maybe with Biden, I can I can get in there. Yeah, again. This is
1: the this is what the Biden presidency is going to be all about is water stories. I think
2: water stories. I mean, yes, racism is important. Systemic issues are important. Those are all very important. But but if we don't have water, we can't do any of that shit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think there's been, there's been a lot of talk about how late night shows and The Daily Show will change without Trump on the scene every day, although who knows if he'll actually be off the scene, but not as president. How do you think the show will change, and, and do you think it's a good thing, or, or how, how are you thinking yes. about it?
2: Yes, I think it's a good thing. Um, I think the, the general population somehow thinks that comedy can't exist without this guy in office. Um, These are professional comedians These are professional comedy writers They can make a situation funny No matter who's in office In fact, it almost feels like low-hanging fruit sometimes When you really just have to showcase the tweet And it gets a laugh, you know Um, I think the comedy team at The Daily Show And even as a stand-up People are going, oh, now that you don't have Trump What are you going to talk about? Well, I never talked about him anyways I would much rather talk about packing drunk Or trying to wash your hands when the faucet doesn't work or living with your parents. I think those are more universal and more funny than this internet troll who became president.
1: Yeah, I think a really great uh, distillation of this was on Saturday Night Live this past week where they did, Cecily Strong did uh, this woman, Melissa Carone, who's the Rudy Giuliani's witness. And she was really funny and it was like a really good impression and there were some funny lines, but it was like, it's not really going to be funnier than what we actually saw.
2: And I didn't see SNL, but she was drunk, right?
1: She was kind of playing drunk. Yeah. And the woman in real life seemed pretty drunk and and so she was playing drunk. And there's a certain level of this stuff where it's like, you can just repeat what's Happening and it, it'll get a laugh, but it's not a satisfying from a comedy writer perspective.
2: Yeah, it almost feels like we're just aggregators. We're just like pulling the funny clip and seeing if we can repeat it. So I'm looking forward to the challenge of of hopefully and uh, you know it's like what you alluded to. Will he be quiet uh, in the background? No, he won't. But I also think that that our job is not going to be to be covering Trump anymore. It's going to be covering the president of the United States, which would be Joe Biden.
1: What about stand up? I mean, you now you have this special out. And I think, you know, usually when uh, when people put specials out, they they like to tour after them and get work on new material. And that's not happening. How are you handling the the inability to get on stage at this point?
2: Yeah, I mean, poorly. I like performing. I have all tons of notes of things I want to start working on. I had those notes a year ago when we when we filmed I mean I was very I was very ready to tape this special and move on, but I've learned how to cook. <laughs> I, you know, enjoy quarantine for the most part. Not all the sickness and the negativity on the news and and the death, but there is a part I think that all of us have appreciated slowing down for a moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Stand up comedy is a three, four times a night thing. Hurry up, run to the next show, run to the next show, run to the next show. So I have put out the special and enjoyed chilling. But when things Get back up and running again. Um, I'm excited to get back on stage.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. So we end every episode of the podcast by asking comedians, about another comedian or or time in comedy where you laughed really really hard. Oh yeah. So uh, I'm uh, I'm curious if there's a story or a memory or a moment that c- comes to mind when you when you laughed really hard either from watching a comedian or just hanging out with a comedian or anything that that you uh, you could think of.
2: A few are popping into my mind. I mean, I had a long week in Las Vegas with Jeremy Hotz, and he was. He was a headliner and he was just, he, he plays this kind of miserable guy on stage, but every day he would get more and more depressed about being in Vegas. And it's just brutal. And you know what? I shouldn't make fun of Vegas now because if any, if any city is hurting with the pandemic, it's probably Las Vegas. But he, he generally makes me laugh. I mean, I remember the comedy store, Leslie Jones, before she took off. I mean, Leslie was making $15 a night just like everybody else was and screaming into the microphone <laughs> at some of the patrons that are sitting in the front row. I mean, and I would just sit in the back and I would just laugh, laugh, laugh. And it was so aggressive. It was so different than any other comic. And I never even thought, I mean, to me, SNL was a strange route for her, but it's worked. And Leslie makes me laugh. Jeremy hotz made me laugh. I mean, there's more, I'm sure I'll come up with more after this, but- Leslie's a,
1: good, Leslie's a good example of someone who can't not be funny regardless of the medium, because now she's just been on Twitter commenting live on cable news. I don't know if you've caught any of her uh, her Twitter stuff. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I have. And part of what's good about social media is you see that Leslie's just funny. Like if you're sitting with her with lunch with her, it's just funny when she's just authentic with her feet up taping something. It, it She is just funny. So that makes me happy when I see that that the social media is able to showcase true yeah, funniness. Can, can capture that. Yeah, exactly
1: well thank you so much for uh, for doing this and I, I really enjoyed your special and i think everyone else will as well so everyone check it out
2: i appreciate that you actually watched it and uh, <laughs> of course i know you did because i can tell by the questions you asked so thank you and it's uh it, you don't get a special very often so when you do it's really fun to put it out there and i appreciate you helping spread the word
1: yeah thanks so much all right, thanks again to Michael Costa for chatting with me for this bonus episode. His new stand up special, Detroit, New York, LA, premieres tonight, Friday, December 11th on Comedy Central at 11 p.m., and will be available on demand after that. He also has a podcast called Tennis Anyone that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but you should definitely check out wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, are you a fan of this one? If so, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.